Jeff's Midweek Bible Study, a verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible with Pastor Jeff Lassane. We hope this podcast encourages your faith, and now, here's Pastor Jeff. Hey there, and welcome to the podcast. You know, on rainy days here in Tennessee, one of the things that my wife and I uh, enjoy doing from time to time is putting together jigsaw puzzles. We like those 1,000-piece puzzles, and we've got our own little system worked out. First, we dump all the pieces out onto the dining room table, and we turn all the pieces upright, and then we're making a separate pile with all the edge pieces. Then we put the frame together, and after that, I work on one half or one side of the puzzle while my wife works on the other side and on the other half. We usually have oldies music playing in the background, and you know, it's a nice way to spend some time together. Now, the majority of puzzles that we do have the actual picture on the puzzle box cover, and we know exactly what the picture looks like that we're attempting to put together. But in the last couple of years, we've tried our hand at a few uh, what's called mystery puzzles, whereby you have no picture to work with. There's a brief story included, which gives you clues about the details that might be in the mystery puzzle picture. It's definitely more challenging than a regular puzzle, but it's a nice change of pace uh, every so often. You know, when it comes to the subject of the last days and the end times, it's something like those mystery jigsaw puzzles. We don't have an exact picture of what things are going to look like, but the Bible does give us details that help us to put the picture together. And very much like a jigsaw puzzle, the picture becomes clearer and clearer as more pieces begin to fit together. You know, that's what's happening for us in these last days. The pieces are fitting together more and more, and the end times picture is becoming clearer and clearer. Some of the pieces to the end times puzzle are included here in Mark 13, where we've been making our way verse by verse. In the first few verses of this chapter, we found four disciples asking Jesus questions about the end of the age. Unlike large-scale prophecy conferences today, which are a blessing, here were four disciples sitting together with Jesus on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, listening to him explaining the last days. As Jesus began to describe the signs for the end times, he warned that in the last days there will be many false messiahs, prophets, and teachers as well as wars, earthquakes, and famines. And so the the natural question that kind of comes up is, how can those events be signs of the end times when those events have been with us for centuries? The answer to that question and the key to understanding these events in relationship to Jesus coming back is recorded at the end of verse 8. These are the beginnings of sorrows. Now, the Greek word for sorrows here, and in other uh, end-time passages like Matthew 24, 8 and 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, translates as labor upon a woman with child, or simply put, labor pains. And so what both the Lord Jesus and the Apostle Paul were saying is that the signs of the last days, which have been with us for centuries, will intensify in both frequency and power strength. And when that happens, then we know that the end is coming. 
In his comparison of labor pains to the end times, Paul describes the suddenness of it all. A pregnant woman isn't surprised that she's going to have a baby. She certainly shouldn't be. However, the labor pains themselves can strike suddenly and unexpectedly. The pregnant mom is going about her daily routine and all of a sudden those intense labor pains hit her unexpectedly and she knows it's time to get to the hospital. In the same way, the signs of the end times that Jesus gives will intensify in frequency and strength and then suddenly, unexpectedly, it will all hit with dramatic force. Now, as we get ready to return to our verses here in Mark 13, please keep in mind what I mentioned in our last podcast. The majority of the last day signs are for the return of Jesus Christ at his second coming. And his second coming is at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. But before the seven-year tribulation period begins, Jesus will meet his church in the clouds and take all believers out of the world in what the Bible describes as the rapture of the church. Jesus makes reference to it in John 14. Paul also references it in 1 Corinthians 15, and then Paul articulates it in 1 Thessalonians 4. The Lord will come from heaven, but not all the way to the earth, and all the believers around the world will be caught up or raptured up to meet the Lord. Then for the next seven years, while the church is up in heaven with Jesus, the rest of the world will face God's judgment down here on earth during the tribulation. At the conclusion of that seven years, Jesus will return to the earth at his second coming. So then, and listen please, as we read about the signs that Jesus describes here, it includes details that took place back at that time, because as we've already discussed, the last days began with the ascension of Jesus and the birth of the church. At the same time, Jesus was giving details for us today, and then mostly these details and warnings are for the future. At this moment, we're still in the last days. We're actually in the last part of the last days, and then the rapture of the church will close out the last days and begin the end times. And so, Jesus describes persecution here for the disciples then, for us as believers today, And then Jesus describes events that will take place during the tribulation period all the way up to his second coming. When we understand that, then we can better understand his words here. And so now let's return to our text in Mark 13, and we're picking up in verse 9. Jesus says, Now watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, don't worry beforehand or predetermine what you will say. But whatever is given to you in that hour, just say it, for it is not you who speaks, but the Holy Spirit. Now, brother will betray brother to death and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Using our jigsaw puzzle analogy, the title of this message is The Last Day's Puzzle Pieces. In verse 9, Jesus begins to talk about persecution that includes being arrested and brought before councils 
as well as being beaten in synagogues. Notice with me, Jesus was using Jewish terms to talk about the persecution of his disciples and the early church Jewish believers. In the book of Acts, soon after the birth of the church, we read several examples of Jewish believers being persecuted, arrested, and beaten. Some, like Stephen and James, the brother of John, were executed. Then as Gentiles were added to the church, those who were persecuted were also brought before rulers and kings. This has continued now throughout church history and For example, during the Reformation, many believers were condemned before rulers and kings and burned at the stake. This persecution continues to this day, and the worst of it is in other places outside of the United States, though we have persecution here, the worst of it is elsewhere in the world where Christians are put to death because of their faith. In verse 10, we have a sometimes misapplied verse when we read, "...and the gospel must be preached to all the nations." Some well-meaning Christians have applied this verse to mean that the gospel will reach the whole world before the rapture of the church and the beginning of the tribulation period. However, as we read the parallel verse of Matthew 24, 14, it says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. The end is not the rapture. The rapture is actually a transition into the end times, and so the end refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ at the end of the tribulation period. To this day, the gospel is still reaching nations and places around the world that have not yet heard the gospel. And after the rapture, the gospel will continue to reach out to lost people. For example, Revelation 9, we read about 144,000 Jewish evangelists who will proclaim the gospel all over the world. And in Revelation 14, we read about angels flying throughout the skies above the earth, proclaiming the everlasting gospel to every nation and people still living on the earth at that time. So the gospel will be preached to all nations before the end comes, which is the end of the tribulation period and the moment of Christ's second coming. The exhortation here of Jesus then in verse 11 about you know being arrested and not worrying about what we will say and that the Holy Spirit will give us the words in that moment, that was for believers being persecuted back then, believers being persecuted today, and believers that will be persecuted in the tribulation period. If we are arrested for our faith and brought before authorities, we can know the Holy Spirit will give us the words to speak about our faith. Remember back in Acts 4 when some of the disciples were arrested for proclaiming the gospel. They were beaten and sternly warned not to continue proclaiming the name of Jesus. But the Holy Spirit gave them the words to say in response, We must obey God rather than obeying men. You know, just recently, you may have seen in the news uh, that in a town in Pennsylvania, there was a pride parade being held that included homosexuals, transgenders, and drag queens, and all of it was endorsed by the city mayor. Remind me not to live in that town. A Christian man was across the street on the sidewalk and on public property. During this event, he was preaching the gospel and holding a sign that read, Jesus said, go and sin no more. And he was doing this very peaceably. But very quickly, a police officer was in his face, angrily demanding that he stop preaching. 
He didn't, and the same officer immediately handcuffed him and arrested him. And as he was being arrested, the man pointed out to the officer that he was, first of all, standing on public property, so it was his right, and more importantly, that the drag queens were performing in front of little children. But none of those reasonable points were heard or considered, and he was arrested. Common sense and biblical truth would dictate that the drag queen performing in front of children, that's the one that should have been arrested and not the Christian man, but... Common sense and biblical truth are in grave danger. In verse 12, as spiritual battle lines continue to be drawn, family members will betray one another and Christians will be persecuted by their own family and friends. And as a result, many will be put to death. Once again, this is already happening in the world today and it will escalate in the tribulation period. And what we read in verse 13 is clearly happening now when Jesus warns, you will be hated by all for my namesake. Right now, many hate Christians because of the name of Jesus, but it won't be long before it will include all, everyone outside of the Christian faith. More and more, as you and I speak up and stand up for the truth, we are hated. We're hated for opposing abortion, hated for our refusal to affirm deviant lifestyles, hated for saying that Jesus is the only way to heaven. But as Christ warned, if the world hates you, just remember that it first hated me. Then Jesus says here, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. And he's not saying that our endurance saves us, but rather that those who are genuinely saved will endure and that our faith will hold firm even in the face of persecution. Now Jesus in our passage begins to describe an astonishing pivotal event that will take place in the tribulation period. So let's read about that as we pick back up in verse 14. Check out what Jesus says here. He says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of the house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. And woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Pray that your flight or your running away may not be in the winter. For in those days there will be tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he will shorten those days. The abomination of desolation. It's one of those end time terms from the Bible that causes many people to ask, what is it and what does it mean? It's helpful for us, we're going to simplify this, at least I hope we are, Uh, we're going to do so by looking at this subject chronologically in the Bible. The term, abomination of desolation, is recorded three times in the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapters 9, 11, and 12. One of those references in Daniel 11 was pointing to an historical event that took place uh, closer to the end of the Old Testament period when there was a wicked ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes. He invaded the Jewish temple, had a pig sacrificed on the altar, and then forced the Jewish priests to eat the meat 
and the flesh of that pig. Afterwards, then, he had an image of the Greek god Zeus set up inside the temple for worship. In many ways, then, that became sort of a template for the future abomination of desolation in the tribulation period. And with that, the other two references to the abomination of desolation in the book of Daniel were prophecies of the future event that will take place in the middle of the seven-year tribulation period. Now, it's also referenced in the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all of it in the context uh, context of the Olivet Discourse, which we're looking at right now in, in Mark 13. It's also referenced in 2 Thessalonians 2. The Apostle Paul makes mention of it in his discussion of the Antichrist and the end times. And then finally, the abomination of desolation is described by the Apostle John in Revelation 13. According to Daniel 9, the coming world leader identified in Scripture as the Antichrist will barter or negotiate a seven-year Middle East peace agreement that allows the Jews to rebuild their temple. Uh, The temple was destroyed all the way back in the first century, but will finally be rebuilt in the coming days. Now let me pause for a moment and offer up a point of clarification, if I may. The next event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. It is an event that could take place at any moment. Now some Bible students have suggested that it is the rapture of the church that launches the world into the tribulation period, but that's not exactly accurate. It's close, but not exactly accurate. As Paul helps to clarify in 2 Thessalonians 2, the rapture will take place first, and then once the church is removed, the identity of the Antichrist will be revealed at some point afterwards. That world leader will come seemingly out of nowhere to the forefront, and he will negotiate a seven-year agreement for Middle East peace. And according to Daniel, when that happens, that is the event, the signing of that agreement or Middle East covenant, that is the event that officially launches the global seven-year tribulation. So we don't know how much time will elapse between the rapture and the signing of that agreement. I don't think it's going to be very much time. It may be a few days, a few weeks, perhaps a few months, but uh, there will be a little bit of time in between. Israel then, uh, according to this agreement, will be allowed to rebuild her temple. And we know that for a fact. Paul speaks of the Antichrist desecrating the temple in 2 Thessalonians 2 and Revelation 13. So clearly there's a Jewish temple in the future in the tribulation period. That brings us to another assumption that some Christians have about the rebuilt temple that the Dome of the Rock, the shrine that currently sits on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem today, has to be destroyed or removed. In my opinion, I actually disagree, and I have a feeling that that's probably not the case. The Temple Mount area is about 35 acres in size, and while the Muslim Dome of the Rock has been sitting there in the middle since the 7th century, there's still plenty of room for the Jews to build their temple in the same adjoining area. In fact, many Jewish scholars believe and point out that the open space on the Temple Mount to the north of the dome, it lines up with the eastern gate, and they will tell us that is the actual site where the Holy of Holies once was. 
So there's a very good chance that the Jewish temple will be rebuilt right there on the Temple Mount on the north side, and possibly there'll be a wall erected between the newly built temple and the existing Dome of the Rock. I don't believe for a moment that any of the Jewish religious leaders in Israel today would ever settle for rebuilding their temple anywhere else except on the Temple Mount. Here's a couple of things to note about that situation. The Jewish religious leaders in Israel today have everything ready to rebuild their temple. They're they're ready to go, and they're ready to begin their system of animal sacrifices once again. They are anticipating their temple being rebuilt. That's why they're ready. All the materials are ready, the building supplies, the temple utensils, the priestly gowns, the particular animals they need, you know, the red heifer, all of that, and so on. All of those leaders are waiting right now for a green light. You know, on my last visit to Israel, our group happened to be standing near one of the prominent Jewish religious leaders. We were at the entrance that goes up to the Temple Mount. We were all kind of waiting our turn. And uh, my tour guide, our tour guide, just motioned to me and said, hey, that's one of the prominent Jewish religious leaders in Israel today. So me not knowing any better, I asked the tour guide, can you introduce me to him and allow me to ask him a question? So the tour guide went over and conferred with him and he said it was okay. So I was brought over and introduced to him. I apologize, I don't remember his name. But I said, I want to ask you a question. How and when will the Jewish temple be rebuilt? He looked at me very seriously, almost sternly, and he simply said, by force or by peace, it will be rebuilt very soon. Interesting answer. Indeed, as the tribulation period commences, the Jews will immediately begin rebuilding their temple. And once again, as we read in Daniel 9, it's the coming world leader, the Antichrist, who's going to make it happen. As a result, not only will the temple be rebuilt, but the Jewish people will actually come to believe that that world leader is their long-awaited Messiah. Now, we've discussed in our recent studies here in Mark, the Jews do not view the Messiah as divine like we do, and as we understand from New Testament scripture. As Christians who follow the New Testament, we know that Jesus is the Messiah, therefore he's both divine and human. He's the God-man. The Jews, however, only see the Messiah as being a human leader in the vein of King David, someone who will lead them politically and militarily. And so Israel will be elated not only to rebuild their temple, but to reestablish their Old Testament system of the priesthood, the sacrifices, the temple worship, and all the while they'll feel that they're in the good graces of the Messiah who has finally come. But then three and a half years into the seven-year tribulation, at the midpoint, as Daniel and the New Testament writers describe, the Antichrist will invade the Jewish temple with military force, He will put an end to the Jewish sacrifices, and then he will defile the temple by having his image erected inside, demanding that the world worship him. As we read in Revelation 13, he will be assisted by a global religious leader and an assistant who's identified as his false prophet. This then is the abomination of desolation as described in both the Old and New Testament. And so what does the phrase abomination of desolation actually mean? Well, the Hebrew word describes 
among other things, acts of adultery, homosexuality, and idolatry. It describes that which is detestable and foul, immoral, and blasphemous. And in a majority of biblical instances, the word abomination is oftentimes referring to a blasphemous idol or image. The Greek word carries a similar meaning, and Revelation 21-27 says that no one who practices abomination will be allowed into heaven. Then there's desolation, which simply means devastation and destruction. So literally, abomination of desolation, literally it's the blasphemous idolatry that brings about devastation. In the tribulation period, this event will consist of the Antichrist declaring himself to be God and then requiring the world to worship him. His image will remain inside the temple for the final three and a half years of the tribulation. The abomination of desolation will then start a chain reaction of other events. For one, it will reveal the true agenda of the Antichrist, an agenda to rule the world and to be worshipped by all the people of the world. Satan, who's clearly behind every detail of this, fell from heaven as an angel because he wanted to be worshipped like God in heaven. He was not successful in heaven, but for a short period of time, he will receive that long-awaited worship here on earth. Those who worship the Antichrist will literally be worshiping the devil. They will consist of unsaved people who hate God and who willingly receive the mark of the beast, another name given to the Antichrist. Another event that will be set off by the abomination of desolation is that it launches the second half of the tribulation period referred to in scripture as the Great Tribulation. In general, we have the seven-year tribulation, but the final three and a half years, because of the intensity of what goes on and God's judgment, is referred to as Great Tribulation. And so thirdly, the Antichrist will launch an all-out attack in the second half of the tribulation period upon the Jewish people, attempting to eradicate the nation of Israel, just like many in Scripture before him, Haman and Herod and just so many others. Satan hates the people of God, whether it's God's chosen people, the Jews, or whether it's the born-again believers, the Christians. Most of what Jesus warns about here in the verses that we read are directed to the Jewish people at this point in the tribulation period. At the end of verse 14, Jesus is warning those Jews to flee like fugitives to the mountains. One of the reasons that uh, tour groups like to do an extension after their visit to Israel and go down to Petra the mountains of Petra down there in Jordan is because there's a very good chance that's where the Jews are going to flee. We don't know that for a fact, but it does say in the Bible that they will flee to Moab, which is the Old Testament name for modern-day Jordan. And it's in modern-day Jordan that the mountains of Petra are there, and it's kind of an ideal place. And so there are many of us who believe there's a good chance that those Jewish fugitives fleeing the wrath of the Antichrist are going to flee to the mountains of Petra. We don't know again for a fact, but could be. Jesus also warns them in verses 15 and 16 not to enter their homes to gather anything because there simply won't be enough time. Listen, the deadly persecution of the Antichrist and his armies will come after the Jews like a flood. It will be moving fast. 
in verse 17, Jesus states that women who are pregnant or have nursing babies will be especially vulnerable because they will be slowed down in their attempt to flee. And if this takes place in wintertime, the weather will also make things so much more difficult. This brings us back to the discussion again of who Jesus was primarily directing these words to. There's some application for his disciples back there at the Mount of Olives when they had this conversation, and for us as believers today to a certain extent. But as we look closely at the text and the passage, incredibly, Jesus is directing the majority of his words to the Jewish people in the tribulation, as well as those Gentiles who will come to saving faith in the tribulation period. The people who actually experience these events are in the tribulation, and the church will have been raptured up to heaven before this time. Notice again, it's directed to those who are in Judea, that's in Israel, and also a clear exhortation in verse 14, let the reader understand. So even though we're reading this now, we won't be there in the middle of the tribulation, but the person who comes to Christ and is reading these words will know that it's intended for them. Jesus points out that all of that tribulation is going to be unimaginably terrible, worse than anything in the history of the world, and therefore worse than the global flood in Genesis or the Holocaust of Hitler. It will be so bad and so lethal that if God does not shorten those days, everyone would soon be dead. But for the sake of the elect, which I think includes the Jewish people as well as the Gentiles who become believers, God will limit the time of this judgment. Then finally, in verses 21 to 23, Jesus also warns that many false messiahs and prophets will arise, just bringing further deception and deceit. And obviously, Jesus Christ, when he actually does return at his second coming, the whole world will know it. The light will shine as like from the east to the west, and there won't be any second guessing as to whether or not it's Jesus. And so the second coming of Jesus will be our subject in our next podcast as we continue our study and our look at the verses here in Mark chapter 13. So then let's finish our time with some takeaway application for us as last day's believers. From this passage, number one, we have information. You know, as last day's believers, we're not in the dark as to what looms on the horizon of world history. Jesus even said here in verse 23, Take heed, I have told you these things beforehand. Listen, do we have all the answers to every question? Certainly not. But we have plenty of information here that gives us a pretty darn clear picture of what lies ahead. Number two, we have motivation, both for holy living and for sharing the gospel with others while we still can. We know what's ahead for this world, but those who are unsaved are unaware and unprepared. People desperately need Jesus. Thirdly, we have consolation. We as believers will not be here in the tribulation that's going to come upon the whole earth. And God promises to keep us from that hour of trial, as for example, he says in Revelation 3.10. Not because we deserve it, but because God is kind and faithful and merciful to his people. And with that, the the Bible has a message for the end times, but that message is also that God is in control at all times. Well, this brings us to the most important question. Are you ready for Christ's return? 
if Jesus were to come back today for his people, would you go to heaven or would you be left behind to face the unprecedented horrors of the tribulation period? Oh, sure, you could call out and receive Christ in the tribulation, but you'll be facing unimaginable horrors, the likes of which the world has never experienced. You'll be a fugitive on the run for your life, and in all likelihood, you will be caught and killed. This is exactly why the Bible says today is the day of salvation, because tomorrow may be too late. If you're not ready or you're just not sure, you can get right with God right now. All that suffering and judgment that we've been talking about that will happen in the tribulation period, that's God's judgment. And for those who trust Christ by faith, that judgment has already come upon Jesus on the cross. And instead, we receive his forgiveness and his mercy. Jesus willingly died for you because he loves you and because he wants to save you and wants to give you eternal life with him in heaven. Perhaps some of you listening right now are backslidden believers and you need to come back to Christ. Either way, let me urge you to cry out to God and in prayer, confess to him that you are a desperate sinner in need of a savior. The only thing holding you back right now is your pride. So please humble yourself before God and call out to him while you can. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 